Thank you for listening to the Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a series called Respectable Sins right now. You see, there are destructive behaviors that nobody would support, like lying or stealing. But sometimes the most dangerous sins are the ones that nobody thinks are wrong. And so we're taking a look at those respectable sins that have become such a part of our behavior that we hardly even notice them. Or worse, we scoff at the idea of not doing them. So let's identify how things like vanity, greed, consumption, the things we watch, might be keeping us from the freedom that we desire. And as always, be sure to reach out to us if you need anything at all at tablechurchdsm.org. All right, so there's a little taste of our Zambia trip. It was awesome. And again, if you see any of the people, there was eight of us that went on this trip. We doubled our team from last year. And so we're hoping we can double it again next year. So let's get 16 people from Table Church to go to Zambia on this trip next year and work with Poetis. And you might be thinking, Phil, uh, I didn't see eight people in most of those pictures. I only saw seven. It's because it was just me with a bunch of women and they, I wasn't in most of the team pictures because they like formed their own little club without me. That's all good though. They cried too much. I didn't really want to be with them. I'm just kidding. It was amazing. They're incredible, every one of them. And we had an awesome time. Let me just tell you, one of the most incredible things that I think God did in our hearts on this team, on this well, every single person on this team would probably agree with this and is, and is just impressing upon us the, the importance and the power and the, and, and the effectiveness of prayer. Um, prayer was such a huge theme on this trip. In fact, it's called Love Choma. That's the name of this trip. And Choma is the city that Poetis, which is our missions partner, uh, they're in the city of Choma. And what we did is we just blitzed the city of Choma for a whole week with all sorts of service projects and love and spreading the word because it was all uh, culminating in a big citywide gathering that we had on Friday night. And so we were sharing about this event and in the end it was incredible. There was over 1,500 people from the city that came and worshiped with us and heard the gospel. And all through the week we were having a 24-hour prayer vigil. Every day, 24 hours a day, there was somebody constantly praying uh, for that event. And Poetis had a prayer room set up, and so people from our team, some of them took slots in the middle of the night, like two in the morning. And you know what happens when you take the time slot at two in the morning? The person who took the three o'clock time slot doesn't show up. And so then at least one of us had to pray for extra time, right? And, uh, but what everyone said was that I cannot believe how fast an hour of prayer can go. Like, it just goes like that. When you set aside everything and you're just there to just rejoice in the Lord, to just enjoy his presence, it just flies by. So that was one of the most transformative things, I think, that any of us would probably say on the team. And it's something that we want to bring back here to Table Church. I believe that God has been doing a work in our hearts in Table Church. When I say our, I don't mean the team. I mean all of us here. God's been doing a work in our hearts around prayer this year. We've had some really incredible moments and teachings on prayer, and so we can't wait to see that continue. We believe that God is calling us deeper into his heart, and that's one of the things that we want to see coming out of this trip. So if that looked like fun to you, I promise you it is. Um, There's a saying that we say around Poetis, nobody comes to Zambia once uh, because it's just such a joy to be there, such a transformative thing. You learn a thousand times more from them than they do from us. And so be praying about what next year might look like. It's usually the end of July. And if that's something you think you'd like more information on, please come talk to us. All right, so 
We're in Philippians chapter 2 today. Uh, I'm not going to actually read the whole passage because I'm going to take it bit by bit as I walk through the sermon, but I still would encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, particularly we're looking at verses 2 through 11. Um, And so be sure to open there. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the ushers would be happy to bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep the one that we're giving you. It's yours. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. Um, Something I've learned, I think, since becoming a parent is that every generation of parents worries about their kids. And I think we always think that our kids are growing up in a worse situation than we did. Like there's this general idea, I think, that the world is getting scarier and more dangerous for kids with every passing generation. Well, there's actually been some research that shows that in a lot of the most important ways, that's not really true. Um, That actually it's safer now to let your kids ride their bike to the park than it was when I was a kid. And um, so there's all sorts of of studies that show that really the world is, is getting safer in many ways, not more dangerous, despite of the fact that we might feel like it's getting more dangerous. But there is a new and unique danger for young people today. And it isn't at the park. It's not in an unmarked van. Uh, It's not at school. And it's actually everywhere. It's in our homes. It's perhaps even in your pocket. Maybe you're looking at it right now. And that danger is called social media. Now, I don't want to sound alarmist here, but the overwhelming data on social media, on what it does to a person's emotional well-being, particularly a young person in those formative years, it's simply overwhelming. We simply cannot ignore it anymore. There's a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, and he was testifying before Congress, and in his testimony, he described what he calls, quote, the specific, gigantic, sudden, and international mental health crisis that we are facing right now in our world. Now, this crisis applies specifically to Generation Z, those who are in school right now. And it is bad among young boys. It is worse among young girls. Starting around 2010, which also happens to be the time when social media exploded into the everyday life of the American teenager, we saw a skyrocketing rate of mental health, depression, you name it. The statistics are simply staggering. 63% increase of major depressive episodes among teenagers and young adults. A 71% increase in young people reporting suicide-related outcomes within the previous year a 60% increase in mental health-related hospitalizations among teenage girls. Look, that sort of widespread and sudden change, that that is that, that drastic, that has happened on virtually a global scale, is unheard of. That doesn't happen, and yet it is happening right now in our world, in our lifetimes. And so, of course, the question is, well, what's going on? What's causing this? Now, Haidt and other researchers have done a tremendous amount of work linking the mental health crisis to social media. I'm not going to give you all the numbers here, 
but I'll summarize it for you. I would simply say this, that science says thinking about yourself too much is bad for you. That's really what it boils down to, I think. And you know something? The Apostle Paul kind of warned us about this a long time ago. When I say, now, thinking about yourself too much, what I'm, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't take care of yourself. I don't mean ignore your mental and emotional needs. What I'm referring to is what has become a general expectation that you will curate an image of yourself. In our lifetimes, we've seen the normalization of self-centered communication, and apparently it has a drastic toll on our mental health. There is now more than ever a separation of who we are from who we project ourselves to be, and it is resulting in like fractured selves, and it's the new normal, and it is truly a new danger for young people, particularly for everybody, but it seems to be having a particularly um, harsh effect on those who are younger. Now, we're launching a new series today. It's a four-week series called Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins. I want to look at some of the things uh, in our culture, some of the sins that have become respectable, the things that have become normalized, the things that we no longer really blink at, the things that we, in fact, would go to great lengths to justify, as perhaps some of you already are uh, in this sermon that I'm preaching, uh, the things that become expected of us now in our culture and yet are not in alignment with the way of Jesus. Now, I should issue a warning. If we do this series well, you're going to get annoyed because respectable sin, by, ver- by definition, is a sin that, well, it's become acceptable, respectable. It's probably something that many of us do, if not all of us do, at one time or another. Now, I'm not going to be saying that having a social media account is a sin, by the way. We're talking about this, this self-centered, narcissistic culture that we kind of swim in that we've maybe come to accept, that's kind of become normalized. Now, I I could preach a sermon against lying, and everybody would be like, yeah, lying's bad, you shouldn't do that, you know? I could could talk about stealing, and we'd be like, yeah, you shouldn't, totally shouldn't steal. I'm against stealing. Even Even though lying and stealing are very widespread, right? Like, lots of people lie and steal. It hasn't become accepted. It hasn't become normalized. Like, we still think it's wrong for the most part. But when we're talking about respectable sins, we're we're talking about stuff that that's not the case anymore. It's just become something we expect. And so today's sermon is called Selfie Culture. And we're looking at the widespread vanity that has become not just acceptable, but perhaps justified. And so we're also going to talk in this series about what we watch on our TVs. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about the things that we consume. And just remember, nobody's goal is to instill guilt on everybody. The goal is to identify, look, what's the way of Jesus and what isn't? And if this isn't, then presumably our goal is to align ourselves with the way of Jesus as Christians. And we actually do believe that the way of Jesus is the path to true freedom and joy in life. And so that's what we're trying to accomplish in this series. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he was speaking into a culture that was also obsessed with self-promotion. In fact, the city of Philippi, perhaps more than any other Roman city, uh, is appropriate for this message. Because we have discovered 
large stone monuments. We've excavated these things, large stone monuments in the city, in the ancient city of Philippi that were announcing the magnificent achievements of people. Now, these monuments were built by the deceased person's family. You see, when in the ancient world, if your great-great-granddad was awesome, that, some of that awesomeness bleeds over onto you. Like they just kind of had this honor culture around families. And so if, you're, if your ancestor did something amazing and heroic and fought in this battle or whatever, like that means that you also get some of that amazingness, some of that heroicism, some of that honor transferred over into your account just because, you know, somebody in your lineage did that. And, and so what they're doing is they're trying to outdo all the other families in town by erecting these large monuments just to go on and on about all the amazing achievements of their ancestors. And then a few feet away, you've got another monument by some other family where it goes on and on about the amazing achievements of their ancestors and on and on it goes. We've, we've discovered a bunch of these things and that's, that's the culture of Philippi. It was, a, it was a very strong honor culture where people were constantly trying to outdo their neighbors. And then Paul drops this bomb on them and on us. He says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now he's, he's going the opposite direction of everything they knew. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I retranslated this passage for a social media age, and what I did was I just changed every verb to the word post. Let's see, what it, let's see how it hits now. It says this, post nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, post others above yourselves. Not posting to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Look, what, if, what if that was the message we communicated to our children about the internet? Like, you, you have this... When you become an adult, you're going to have access to this incredible tool and you can build up others or you can build up yourself. You can promote the good in the world or you can promote anger and division. Forty years ago, Christopher Lash wrote a widely read book called The Culture of Narcissism and in it he argued that Western culture is inherently narcissistic. Narcissism means like obsessed with yourself, right? Now, now what he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that everyone in Western culture is necessarily narcissistic or clinically narcissist. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that uh, we swim in an ocean that encourages us to think primarily of ourselves. And, and it's like the internet has kind of poured gasoline on that fire. So now Lash, of course, he couldn't guess how true his assessment of our culture would continue to be over the next 40 years. Uh, it's now completely normal, if not expected, that you will broadcast a curated image of yourself and of your life in ways that make you look successful and smart and admirable and all those things. In fact, there is, I've talked about this before, you might remember, there's a new emerging term that some thinkers and writers and scholars have applied to our age, and it's a weird word, but they call us the age of profilicity. Profilicity is the age where your identity is anchored in the digital image, the profile of yourself that you have curated. Your identity is anchored in that. And so what this means is that in the age of profilicity, it is not strange. It is not, uh, nobody would blink at the idea of 
uh, you know, you not becoming the person you say you are as long as your profile is such, is that. You no longer have to be formed and actually become this kind of person so long as you have curated an image of yourself in the digital sphere that suggests you are that kind of person. Uh, when we get into the age of profilicity, that sort of a disjunction is perfectly acceptable, if not normal. That's the world that we're living in now. It's where you no longer have to become a certain way through virtue, through formation. Uh, rather, you just have to project an image of yourself that is such, and that's all that is required. And so what we have is, is quite a shift in the way that we think about self-identity happening right now in our culture. Now, much of today's mental health crisis particularly targets young people, particularly young girls. It's some areas, statistics are twice as bad for girls as they are for boys. And so, so we, we have to change this narrative. We just have to do it. it. It screams at them from every corner of the internet, you must be perfect. And it is crushing a generation. And so... If you hear urgency in my voice, it's because I feel urgent about it. I have kids. I believe it has become a respectable sin that my generation created and is now destroying another. The church must become a counterculture against the self-centered pull of our age. We must teach our young people that their identity rests not in any sort of a profile that they curate. It rests in the fact that they are a priceless image bearer of God. That they are free, therefore, to value others above themselves because any worries you might have about your own self-worth, well, that's already been dealt with. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Your identity is so rock-solid anchored in the most valuable foundation you could ever ask for. We've already been given all the value anyone could ever want. We are valued by God. And after Paul tells us to value others above ourselves, in the text, Paul makes a very important move. I think it's very critical to notice what happens here. Paul justifies this. He tells us why we should value others above ourselves. And the, the way he justifies it is that he points to the example of Jesus. In verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then there's a colon. So he's about to tell us the mindset of Christ Jesus. But I want you to notice, before we get there, he does not go on to describe Jesus' values. He doesn't say, oh, your mindset should be like Christ Jesus, who, you know, really value humility and was a really nice guy and, you know, treated others really kindly all the time. Like, that's not what he does. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about Jesus' values. He, rather, he describes precisely what Jesus did. He just tells us the story of Jesus. It says this, starting in verse 5, second half. It says, Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Can you imagine? Like, just sit on that for a second. In very nature God, he was God. He did not consider that something that he could use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That word for servant in the Greek is the same word as slave. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Not just death, but death on a cross, which is no cakewalk, my friends. You know, here's why I think this move is so important, to, to point us to Jesus' actions rather than just his mindset or his values or his feelings or his thoughts. It's because it makes it clear that for a Christian, the cross is not only the place where Jesus died for your sins, it's also the model for how you should live your life. You notice that? The cross has more than one purpose in our belief system. Uh, it is not only the place where Jesus purchased salvation for us, where he conquered sin and death. It's also a paradigm for how we should live our life. And Jesus uses it this way. He tells his followers, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus, they didn't just suddenly scatter and go find a couple pieces of wood and start, you know, nailing them together to have a cross. Like he wasn't talking about a literal cross. He's saying by take up your cross, he's mean take, take upon yourself a cross-shaped life. Let the cross be the pattern of your life. If you're looking for a model to base your life off of, uh, use this Roman torture device as your model. That's what he's saying here. The cross is not just the moment where Christ purchased our, our freedom. It's also a paradigm for how we should live our lives. This matters because we often boil Christianity down to a set of doctrines that you must agree to. Like if you have all the right thoughts, then you're a Christian. And so it's kind of a, I don't know, Christianity is something that takes place in your brain according to this way of thinking. By the way, at Table Church, one of the things we're trying to do is combat uh, that error. I'm not saying that good doctrine is not important. I'm just saying that's not the sum total of your faith. And that's why our mission is to invite people to the way of Jesus because that's what the earliest Christians called themselves. They called themselves followers of the way. In other words, it's first and foremost about how you live. It is a way of living. And that way of living is shaped like a cross. So I'm convinced we've got it backwards. Before Christianity happens in your brain, it has to happen in your life. In fact, the book of James, he writes this, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I'll show you my doctrine by the way I live, is what he's saying. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, sometimes even, you know, demons have good theology at one point or another. Even your correct doctrines aren't, aren't enough. True faith is not something that happens simply in your brain. It's something that happens in your body. It's something that you live out. And so in Philippians, Paul is reminding us that to follow Jesus is to live a cross-shaped life. And a cross-shaped life is one that does what Jesus did, does not reach for greatness, does not consider equality with God something to cling to, it empties itself for the sake of others. This passage that we're looking at today is a very famous passage in the New Testament. In fact, it has a nickname. Scholars call it the kenosis passage. Kenosis is the Greek word for emptying, to empty. This is the emptying passage. It's where Jesus emptied himself. We're called to be self-emptiers. We're called to reject a selfie culture and live out a sacrificial culture. YouTube's slogan is brilliant. It's broadcast yourself. I mean, if, if, if that doesn't strum the heartstrings of our generation, I don't know what does. Broadcast yourself. Wow, that sounds cool. 
You know what it does? It appeals to something in us that the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is that part of you that craves attention, that wants to be noticed. And you know what the Bible says to do with the flesh? It says to crucify it. And so we live in an age that blesses self-centeredness, that baptizes narcissism, and we have to reject it because when we do, not only will others benefit, our own mental health will as well, apparently. Now, I need to be, I need to be clear. There's, there's always a caveat. There's always another side of the coin, right? Uh, social media is not an inherent evil. Uh, there's a certain irony in this sermon in that I am being broadcast onto YouTube right now. Uh, I, if we're lucky, there's nine people watching. And um, so I don't think I'm in any real danger of getting grandiose ideas about, um, I don't know, my social media influence. Uh, but many of you use it for good. I see you do it. Many of you use it for good, social media. You use it for your business. You use it to promote good things that bring healing and hope to the community. I see it all the time. And so I want to acknowledge that thoroughly and thoughtfully and, and, and honestly, that many of us do that. But perhaps it wouldn't hurt for us all to simply ask ourselves, what are we promoting? What am I promoting? What does it do to me when my post gets lots of attention or no attention? The problem is not social media. Social media is the gasoline that's been poured over an already narcissistic culture. Canceling your account would, well, it would probably help with your mental health, honestly. But it wouldn't get rid of self-centeredness overnight. It would not get rid of the flesh. Because, listen, at the center of most self-centeredness is fear. Fear fear of being exposed for who we are, of not measuring up, of, of our limits being discovered, of, of us realizing that, or them realizing that, that we're not all that we thought we were. And here's what I think the gospel calls us to do in, the, in light of that. It's this, to befriend your fear. Befriend your fear. What I mean is figure out what that limit is that you're scared of. Figure out what that weakness is that you don't want others to know and learn to live with it in fact, deep within many of us, there's this scared little boy or girl in our hearts and, and, and they're afraid of being truly seen for who they are. And I think that what the gospel says to us is we need to call them out. Say, come into the light. It's okay. You're going to be fine. Your identity isn't in what they all think about you. God says this to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Isn't that crazy? Like, you got some weaknesses? That's cool. That's an opportunity for Christ's power to rest on you. That's amazing. Look, our faith teaches the very thing that narcissists are terrified of, and it's this. You're not enough. You're just not enough. You need God but our faith also teaches the very thing that our culture most needs to hear. You are deeply loved for who you are. You are so deeply loved for who you are. And that's what we need. That's what the scared little person inside of us needs to know. Look, you don't have to pretend anymore. 
is something we need to remember as we resist the pull of self. So befriend your fear. Uh, when, I was, when I was first uh, in ministry, just after college, there's this one memory that always sticks in my mind. Um, as uh, I don't know. It's just very indicative maybe of who I really am <laughs> um, or was, but probably still am more than I care to admit. I don't know. I was sitting in my office one day, a young pastor, 22 years old, just got a job at a church out of college, and, you know, for, within the first couple of weeks, I think, or months of, of this new job, and um, my, my office was next to a door into the building, and there was a window on my office door, and so anybody that came in through this door had to walk by my office, and uh, I heard the door open and shut, and so I knew somebody's going to be walking by my office here in a moment, and I was sitting in my computer, checking my emails or something, I don't know. Uh, but I just had this instinct that I acted on right away, and that was, hey, grab your Bible and pretend you're reading it. And so I did. I grabbed my Bible, and I put it up over my face like I was reading it. And I wasn't reading it. I just wanted someone to see me reading my Bible. Isn't that crazy? And yet, I suspect that we can relate. See, here's what I missed. Young Pastor Phil, here's what he missed. At first, he missed the fact that nobody cares and probably didn't even look at my window. Second, I missed the joy and security that comes when we realize the unshakable foundation our identity has in God. That is what frees us to give ourselves away. And so we're going to take communion this morning, and, and as we do that, I invite you into that knowledge, into the knowledge that, oh man, there is a love that is chasing you down. That you can, the Bible says that neither height nor depth or angels or demons, life nor death, rulers, principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate, or separate you from that love and, and nothing in the world can possibly compare to it either. You don't have anything to prove. Now, we have a lot that needs fixing in our hearts. We are not enough, remember? We are not enough. We need the grace of God to overcome our sin, our shortcomings, our infirmities. But we have it. It's there for us. And that's what we're going to remember as we come forward for communion. So it's all gluten-free. Uh, so as we play this last song, I'll just simply invite you to come whenever you feel ready. Take a minute with the Holy Spirit and just kind of Pour yourself out to him if you need to. Uh, but whenever you're ready, you just come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and you can take it. Uh, Jesus, you know, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he, and he gave it. And that's what he's doing with us today. We are blessed, we are taken, just like he took the bread. We are blessed, we are broken, and we are given for the sake of the world. And so as we come forward, we remember that we are part of that story part of the, the people who shape their lives like a cross. That's our identity. That's who we are. And so, as you come, may, may you do so knowing that the real presence of Christ is in this moment. He is anointed this time in order to meet with us. So let's meet with him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're grateful that as we come and we take the bread and the cup, um, not only are, are we reminded, not only do we remember what you have done, but Lord, you meet us in it. That we're actually going to meet with you at this table. You invite us to sit down at this table with you and you say, look, there's room for everybody. And so, Holy Spirit, um, have your way with us now.
convict us. Show us where there are unrighteous ways in us. Show us where our hearts do not align with yours, but are maybe doing the opposite of what you did. When you did not consider equality with God something to be used to your own advantage, maybe we're using our power to our own advantage. Maybe we're using our platform to our own advantage and not turning it over to you. Lord, may we be completely sold out for you, taking on the very nature of servitude. So, effect a change in our hearts today as we come before you in the sacrament. We pray all these things in your name.